a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, my fellow wrong thinkers, and welcome to the show. I'm happy to welcome Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos back to the show as we do each week. And Eric, we're going to start with something a little uh, non-political for for starters. Uh, Tell me how life is there in the frozen Arctic of Virginia. Well, I'm going to, of course, naturally turn it to political purposes. I think I should put a, I think I should put a holy rag over my house. Uh, I think it would then protect me from the, the incessant ice storm that we've had now for the past almost three days. I, you know, I've been watching very closely uh, this storm play out across the country. And I mean, I, look, I've got a really good friend down in the Dallas, Texas area who's talking mm-hmm. about zero degrees Fahrenheit for an overnight low, yeah. which is pretty uncommon. But in Virginia, yeah, for Texas, that's brutal. Oh yeah, well, but for for Virginia, it's not just the cold and the the ice. It's uh, you're also suffering uh, power outages. Yes, absolutely. Because when you get an ice storm, of course, uh, the branches on the trees get heavier and heavier, and then after a while, they break. And because the power lines are above ground, inevitably, a power line gets knocked down. And of course, there are also traffic accidents, making it worse. So I've been on the generator off and on for pretty much the last three days. Well, I, I want to take this in that political direction, too, but I, I want to do it with this caveat. Um, it's cold all over the country. This is a huge winter storm. It's hitting just about everywhere. Maybe the very tip of Florida can sit there and sneer at us, but everybody else mm-hmm. is is struggling with some real cold and, and bad, bad weather. And a writer out of Denver, Colorado, Tom Cranawitter, said, you know, if you are warm right now, he says, you owe a debt of gratitude to the oil and gas industry. And I wanted to bring this up to you because I know this mm-hmm. is something you have your finger on as well. Yes. Um, sure. Right right now, it seems like there's a very concerted effort to uh, basically put the oil and gas industry, um, if not out of business, at least into a very crippled role compared to what they could be playing. Yeah, I think it's very easy to take things for granted, including uh, the fuels that keep your house warm and that cook your food and that bring your food to the supermarket. Um, I was thinking about this earlier, actually, before we got on the air, about the gasoline that's in my generator that I can buy right now for about $2.20 a gallon. But what happens when it goes up to 4 or 5 or $6 or more a gallon? Or it, it's just not available because of limited supply, thanks to political policies that have reduced the supply, such as Biden's unilateral decree to shut down the Keystone Pipeline. I think people are going to begin to feel the pinch financially and more than just financially in terms of simply availability as a result of these policies that they voted for, perhaps out of wokeness or feeling goodness and not thinking about the real-world consequences of it. No, I, I agree. There's there's almost a glee that you hear from some of the people who support this idea of, well, let's shut them down. They're just greedy gas and oil companies. Mm-hmm. And here's what Tom Cranwitter says. He says, the people of the oil and gas industry, happily pursuing profit by producing what others value, have likely done more mm-hmm. for the health and well-being of the human species than all the research and technologies in the history of medicine combined. Absolutely. And here's a point of order that actually startled me when I looked into it and found out about it. The, um, the profit margins made by the oil company or cons- oil companies, the big oil cartels, uh, are considerably less 
than the profits made by uh, the insurance cartels. So, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and you never hear anything critical about the health insurance mafia, for example, which is now using the government to force people to buy their product. Nobody's forced to buy gas or oil to heat their home. You know, this is, as you say, something that people need very much and very much want. So it's a free exchange. It's free market capitalism, and that's probably why it's under attack. Yep. I think it's uh, it's a good applied lesson when you look outside and you see that it's freezing and you realize oh my goodness i would be shivering in the dark if it weren't for you know energy providing you know mm-hmm. the electricity that keeps my lights on and the the natural gas or you know fuel oil or whatever it is that's that's keeping my home warm and uh, we take these things for granted and i'd, I'd like to pick your why is it so easy to take these yeah. kind of things for granted I think that we romanticize it. My girlfriend and I were talking about this. We, we like to watch some of these period historical dramas, like uh, Poldark is one. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, and there's another one called, oh, and I'm going to forget the name of it, but it's about a woman who time travels back to uh, the 18th century, and she lives a life in colonial America and then Scotland. And we, we will sit and watch it and think about, you know, it's really neat to think about living out in your cabin in the woods and everything, but think about what these people had to do to survive, just to stay warm, how they had to go out there and manually, by hand, cut down wood to build a fire and keep that fire going, or they would freeze to death and what they had to do to eat, and all of these things that most of us take for granted today and don't have to do because you just turn a switch, the light comes on. You, put the, uh, you turn the tap for your shower, and hot water comes on, and you take a bath. And uh, I think we've gotten very cozily comfortable with these things as given, as if they just are mana that fall from heaven, and, and we don't have to worry about where they come from. And I think that that's a very, very dangerous habit of mind. Agreed. I think there's a lot of things we've been taking for granted that uh, we're probably about to uh, maybe not take for granted. But this is one of the big ones, and and I'm glad to hear that uh, you are making the best of the situation, and we're prepared for it. Well, I'm lucky in that I live in a rural area, and I'm, I'm kind of a country guy now. And most of the people who live where I live in their homes will have a wood stove, for example. So even if the power goes out, you can usually stay nice and toasty with the wood that you cut from your property. And I've got other forms of backup as well. But the majority of people in this country are dependent on the grid. They are dependent on the electricity being on. They are dependent on the gas flowing through the pipes from the city that keep their stove going and all of those kinds of things. And many of them now, I think, are getting a lesson in what happens when, when the pipe doesn't bring what they need. Right. By the way, let's, let's talk for a moment here about, uh, about where energy policy is headed. I can't, uh, I can't for the life of me figure out why it is there seems to be this antipathy toward the oil and gas industry. Um, can, can you give me an idea of, of where does that come from? Why, yeah, why, oh, is, why is this administration so hostile to it? Yeah, well, they're hostile to it because for the woke left, the idea of abundant, affordable energy is anathema. They don't want you to have cheap gas. They do not want you to drive an SUV. They do not want you to live in a single-family house. Uh, these things give you freedom. They don't want you to have that. They want you to be dependent on them for whatever largesse they give you in return for political support. Uh, Now, there are also people who are just naive and dupes, the kinds of people that Lenin once referred to as useful idiots, the woke people uh, who are actually unconscious and who buy into the sloganeering uh, that's directed at them by the elites um, that are painting big oil as some kind of an evil entity. And these are just foolish people, almost childish people, who do, don't, don't understand that uh, it takes energy to live a modern life, and you simply can't wish it into existence. And things like wind farms and solar panels and all of that are great, but they are inadequate 
to provide the needs um, that millions and millions of people have in this country to stay warm, to eat, and so on. Well, and I think you've been one of the leading voices in uh, warning about, uh, you know, the the push towards electric vehicles and, and the subsidization of, of electric vehicles and what that actually costs in terms of what it purports to save. Yeah, by the way, I came across some very interesting data, and I'm going to be writing about this probably today and certainly by tomorrow, uh, that notes that the mileage driven by the typical EV owner is about half or less that of what the average person who does not have an electric car drives the typical EV owner only drives about 5,000 miles a year, whereas most people drive something on the order of 10,000 to 12,000 miles every year. And it's very interesting because that, that dovetails with the profile of the typical electric car owner as a city-dwelling person or a suburban-dwelling person who only uses that electric car occasionally and only for relatively short ranges. And if you think about it, you can, you can imagine what this implies for the average person in terms of how it's going to restrict their mobility, leaving aside the cost of the electric car, just the difficulty in, for example, planning a long trip. Like, let, let's say that you needed to get out of your hometown because of a natural disaster, and you needed to be able to drive five hours down the road. The electric car isn't going to be able to do that without stopping for an extensive recharge. And if, if, if hundreds of thousands of other people are trying to get away from the same place that you're trying to get away from, it's going to be probably pretty challenging to find a place to recharge it. Oh, you know, I really hadn't thought of that, but uh, when hurricane season rolls around, there are a lot of highways in some of those coastal areas that, that look like parking lots of people trying exactly. to escape. Exactly. And oh. again, that leaves aside the cost. You know, I, I harp on this a lot, but I think it's very important uh, to point out that the least expensive electric cars on the market cost upwards of $30,000. That's for the quote-unquote cheap ones, models like the Nissan Leaf and the Chevy Bolt, $30,000. Uh, which effectively means double the price of what you could spend to buy uh, a basic um, non-electric subcompact economy car, something like a Hyundai Accent uh, or even a Honda Civic. Those sell for around fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000. So somehow, by the stroke of a pen, we're going to double the costs of just a basic transportation car for the average person. And I'd like to know how, how that's going to work. How are people going to be able to just pay twice as much as they've paid in the past to get a basic car to go to work and to live. Okay, on that note, we've got to take a very quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We've got some fun stuff to talk about in the next segment. Stay with us. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And uh, Eric... I, I've got a couple of questions to ask you in this segment. This one's kind of, this one is a little bit out of the ordinary, but a friend was asking this question earlier today on social media, and I thought it was a very sincere question and one deserving of a thoughtful answer, and I thought, I'm going to pose this to Eric when I get the chance. And what she was asking was, is it worth speaking out or trying to reach people, try to tell the truth or try to help people see the truth when so many people clearly either don't uh, don't want to hear it or just don't care enough to, to pursue it. Mm -hmm. What is your take well, on I, that? 
I think it is always worth speaking your mind, not in an aggressive or belligerent manner necessarily, but uh, to, to state your point of view and support it with facts. But uh, to get to the core of your question, I think the most important thing is to simply say no to these people who have become hystericized by weaponized hypochondria. I think we're talking about the same thing here. And not permit yourself to be browbeaten and gaslit and shamed into just going along with the program because you don't want them to get upset. That's unacceptable. I, uh, I will have conversations with people where I will say it's perfectly okay with me if you wish to wear your, hate to use the word, mask. I like to use face diaper or holy rag. <laughs> but in any event, if you wish to wear the thing, that's your right. If you want to walk around with a half melon on your head, you're, that's fine. It's a free country. Everybody has the right to wear whatever they want to. However, don't tell me I have to wear one. Don't tell me that I have to accommodate your, your fear, your terror, or whatever it is, whether it's the holy rag or you're afraid of a gun or you're afraid I might drive faster, whatever it is. That's something that you will have to deal with. And no, I'm not going to kowtow to your fears. I like that. You know, one of the things that, that my friend asks is she says, look, how does an evolved person promote truth, especially when those who don't want you speaking the truth have the power in many cases to stop the discussion whenever they feel threatened? Yeah. What, what kind of recourse yeah, yeah. do you have? You know, this is why it is so important, in my opinion, to push back to the absolute limit of the possible with regard to the holy rag, because this is a, it, it is about suborning your tacit approval. By wearing that thing, they want it to look like you agree and that you have consented to all of this. That's one of the main reasons that I refuse to wear the thing, because I will not be put in the position of being made to appear that I agree with this weaponization of hypochondria, with this sickness psychosis. I will show my face, and I think it's extremely important that more and more of us do the same thing. Agreed. Do you, do you have any particular approaches that, uh, that have proven uh, useful or, or productive for you when it comes to talking to people or, or promoting truth, especially when people are so fearful and, and uh, wired up, you know, oh, you know, it can only be this mm -hmm. way, the way that I've told, been told it is? Well, with strangers, it's one thing. With people that you know, it's another thing. If, if you have a relationship with somebody and they seem to be uh, a relatively reasonable uh, person, perhaps you'll be able to have a thoughtful conversation with these people and just bring up the salient points. If you've done your due dil diligence with regard to the, uh, the, the Wu flu, you'll know what I'm talking about. We've talked about this before. You can point out that, hey, I'm not sick, so why should I walk around pretending I'm sick? Oh, you're asymptomatic. Well, the fact is that if you're not sniffling and coughing and sneezing, uh, you don't spread sickness, and so on. You can just keep on bringing up factual points. Now, if they don't stop and pause and say, hmm, you know, I'd never thought about that, you make a good point. In other words, they respond to the facts that you bring up, and they simply regurgitate the talking points of the other side and get progressively more hysterical and belligerent. There's nothing that you can do with that, that kind of yep. a person other than to say no, you know, when they, when they attempt to impose their sickness on you. Okay, I'm going to, I'll channel my inner Nancy Reagan. Um, I'm mm -hmm. going to take it one step beyond just say no, because I'm going to be polite about it and say, no, thank you. <laughs> yes. Then if they push, yeah, it, may be, it may become not just no, but hell no. <laughs> you know, that's actually a very effective thing. When the local chain supermarkets in my area, this is months ago now, they don't do it anymore, but they went through a period of trying to uh, proffer a holy rag you know, at you when you walked in the door. There would be a person standing there with one, and I would just smile and say, no, thank you, and just walk in. And, and that's a nice way to do it politely. You're not being confrontational. You're not you know, starting to create a ruckus or anything. You're simply saying, no, thank you, and move on, your, move on and go about your business. Agreed. 
Well, I know you've been fighting this fight for a long time, and I expect, like like a lot of us, you've probably learned from trial and error. Some mm-hmm. approaches work better than others. I just I see people who are they, they see what's wrong. They feel this is not yeah. right. We're moving in a very dangerous direction. They want to be part of the solution rather than you know just a passive part of the problem or just let it happen with with their tacit approval. Um, but they're not sure, you know, the best way to go about to standing for what they believe. Well, one one way to do it, uh, and this may not apply in your area, it does apply in mine. Uh, a lot of these big stores, uh, my supermarket chain, uh, the local Lowe's, the Home Depots and Walmarts, they have the signs out in front, and the signs have big Stalinist, angry-looking letters that say <laughs> face masks mandated per the order of the governor and all of that, but they don't enforce it. And if you just walk in, hold your head high, and go about your business, nobody bothers you. And um, it takes a little bit of guts to do that. I understand that. You know, nobody wants to violate the rules, and people are understandably concerned that they, you know, they may have to deal with some hysterical person confronting them. But I think this is a small price to pay for your dignity, a small price to pay to promote sanity. And I encourage everybody who can do it, if you, if you have the possibility of going to shop, going out to eat, and you, you don't have to wear the thing, it's just being pressured on you, don't wear it. Okay, well said. Now, here's a totally non-political question for you. Um, I know you do a lot of car reviews in the course of mm-hmm. your writing at epautos.com. I saw that you recently reviewed the Audi A6, and I thought, that's yes. a sexy-looking mm-hmm. car, and I want you to tell me about it slowly. Well, it's a sexy-looking car, but it embodies much of what we've been talking about. Um, Audi, like a number of other manufacturers, uh, they're, they're all under great pressure to not only increase the gas mileage of their cars, but to reduce the gas emissions of carbon dioxide. And now that uh, we've had uh, Joe Biden selected as president, it's a fait accompli that these federal regulations that are um, applying this pressure are going to increase the pressure. So what they've done in the case of this Audi, and you'll see this across a number of other different car lines as as we go into the future, They've incorporated uh, an electric assist drivetrain along with the gas engine to shut the gas engine off and then turn it back on whenever it's necessary, but to keep it off as as often as possible in order to reduce fuel consumption, which it doesn't do very much of, and to reduce gas emissions of carbon dioxide. So it's a technically very interesting system, but it's also a very expensive system, and it's also something that provides negligible benefit to the person that's buying the car. And... This is sort of an intermediate step before we get to this full electrification thing. Wow. That is, it's it's going to be it's going to happen because the manufacturers are caught between a rock and a hard place. Jaguar just announced that it will be electric only beginning in 2025. Volkswagen says 2030 because it's going to become almost impossible to build a vehicle that isn't electric within the next few five to ten years. So give me some prognostication here, Eric. How long before the internal combustion engine? is uh, outlawed? Well, it won't be outlawed. It'll just be restricted. Uh, Our dear leaders will continue to drive around in armored Chevy Tahoes and Suburbans um, that have to have those big V8 engines because you can't power an electric car for any length of time that's that heavy and that uh, and it needs all the things that the the, the elite want to have. But they'll, they'll, of course, be able to afford it because they've got limited access to our money. The whole point of this exercise is to take away these types of vehicles and these types of engines from people like you and I. Yep, that's, uh, that is unacceptable. We're down to about a minute left in the segment here. Let's take a moment to, uh, to tell our, re- our listeners where they can find your website. Talk to us about your sponsors. Let's give them some love mm-hmm. as well. 
Well, sure, it's epautos.com, and I like to call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site because I think it's the only libertarian gearhead site. But be that as it may, I'm pretty easy to find. And I strongly recommend anybody who's looking for a radar detector to check out Valentine One Radar Detectors. And if you're uh, a little bit OCD about car maintenance and you really want to do right by your vehicles and your equipment, uh, I recommend Amsoil products, uh, everything from their engine oil to uh, the lube that you can you use for um, transaxles and, and um, axles and so on. Uh, it's really top-shelf stuff, and, and I use it, and I recommend you do too. Okay, I'll have a link to your website in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Eric Peters, thanks again for visiting with me. You bet, Brian. Thank you. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, and Rio del Sion Home Lots. For information on any or all of these sponsors, I would encourage you to go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and just click on the links. It'll take you right to them. You can tell them thank you for sponsoring the show. So, the three-year anniversary of the Parkland, Florida high school shootings came and went over Valentine's Day. And it's not surprising. It's kind of to be expected that, yes, you would see politicians posturing and, well, you know, President Biden got up there and with the help of his teleprompter, you know, made made some words about how I'm going to, I'm not going to wait for the next school shooting. I'm going to do some common sense gun control and you know, this gets people all aflamed, and, um, you know, I, I watch on a couple of different discussion boards where people are just like, oh, my gosh, here it comes, here it comes, they're looking for more gun control, and and this is the most radical thing you're going to hear me say today, but i got to get this off my chest. Here it is. The only people who are angry or concerned or stressed out about the prospect of further gun control laws at the federal level are people who intend to obey them. Having said that, I don't care one bit. I'm not, the, I'm not stressed in the least. And I'm glad when I find somebody who's, who, who seems to think along these same lines. And Look, if, if that sounds like, gee, Brian, you're sounding like you're declaring yourself a lawless individual, and it's, I, I have just, uh, I've drawn my own line in the sand as far as uh, what, I will legitimately give my consent to as far as government goes and what I will not. And if that's something that, uh, you know, that uh, those who are in power can't understand, that the ultimate power of consent lies with you and me, well, you know, my behavior's peaceful, and it's going to stay peaceful just as long as as possible. You know, I'll, I'll stay peaceful until someone forces me into a situation where I have to respond with force. But I'm certainly not going to go out there and impose force on anybody. And I won't obey whatever words they put on paper just because, well, looky here, we won this election, uh, won, in quotation marks, and therefore you have to do everything we tell you. Nope. It doesn't work that way. Like I said, I'm, I'm getting some, some kind of radical thoughts off my chest. And yet, to me, this is a very reasonable approach. 
And this is the approach that is consistent with a person who understands his rights, is willing to claim them, and is willing to use them and defend them if necessary. A little something I learned from watching uh, my friends, uh, the Bundys, stand up for their rights. Did it come at a great cost? You better believe it did. Was it worth it? Well, when I ask them that question, and I have asked that question, the answer is yes, as hard as it is, it's absolutely worth it. And I'm not telling you, you have to feel the same way or, or even take the same stand, but for what it's worth, there's where I'm coming from. I'm a peaceful, productive member of society. I don't go about trying to change the world by force, but the people who do are determined to bend me and you and everybody else that they can get to go along with it to their will. And yet we have the ultimate, if you'll pardon the pun, trump card, in that we can withhold our consent when necessary. I saw a great article, actually, by Thomas L. Knapp, why I'm still not worried about Biden's gun control proposals. This was actually published yesterday. He says, in a column last November, I dismissed worries that the incoming Biden-Harris administration would, or rather could, successfully implement a more aggressive victim disarmament, that's English for the euphemism gun control, agenda than previous administrations. On Valentine's Day, Biden cynically exploited the third anniversary of a school shooting in Parkland, Florida, asking Congress to pass laws making it even more difficult for people like the 14 unarmed students and three unarmed educators who were murdered at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School. While an armed cop on campus hid and failed to defend them, and it will make it tougher for them to defend themselves. Now, he says, I'm still not worried. It's unlikely that the laws will pass and impossible for them to be enforced if they do. Okay, now hear him out on what he's saying here. This, he's not talking, you know, chaos. He says the proposed laws won't make people like the Parkland victims any less vulnerable to criminals, but it won't make them any more vulnerable either. Government schools are already clearly marked by gun-free school zone signs as open playgrounds for mass shooters. They have been for decades. What kind of legislation is Biden asking for? Well, common sense gun law reforms, including requiring background checks on all gun sales, banning assault weapons and high capacity magazines and eliminating immunity for gun manufacturers who knowingly put weapons of war on our streets. Okay, he says, let's take those one at a time with more than 400 million guns in the hands of more than 100 million Americans. Background checks are silly, dramatic flourishes. People who don't want to submit will simply buy and sell one on one, ignoring the requirement. People who really want new guns from shops but who would be forbidden to buy one under existing unconstitutional law will have friends, spouses, etc. buy for them. By the way, there's another option, too. They can also make their own. 3D printer goes... Okay. Actual assault weapons, meaning fully automatic weapons, have been unconstitutionally banned for general ownership for decades. The current use of the term means ugly military-looking versions of standard hunting and sporting weapons, which have been in public circulation for more than a century. As for so-called high-capacity magazines, the National Shooting Sports Foundation estimates about 80 million of them in circulation. They can be built or converted with generally available machine tools. The absolute maximum effect of such legislation would be people getting guns in wood grain finish instead of black. Big whoop. And as for eliminating immunity for gun manufacturers who knowingly put weapons of war on our streets, no such gun manufacturers exist. The laws Biden wants, he says, are stupid and thankfully would be ineffectual if passed. But most Republicans and several Democrats would vote against them, making them dead on arrival in the U.S. Senate. 
So if it caused you concern, take to heart what Thomas Knapp is saying here. He says all Biden is accomplishing with his statement is outing himself yet again as someone who's more willing to dance in the blood of dead children to score cheap political points. And I would add to that, you know, the, the idea of, hey, we're going to make sure that uh, gun manufacturers are held liable for any, any harm caused by uh, their, their weapons that they create. You know, just like we do with uh, vaccine manufacturers, right? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. There seems to be some immunity that uh, goes along. And I don't mean of the, uh, you know, viral kind. I mean, like, legal immunity. Imagine that. I know it sounds like a terribly radical thing, but I, I'm just going gonna, gonna to drive this point home. Following laws to the letter does not make you a good person. It does not make you a person of sound character or of good moral character. It does not even make you a good citizen. If that were the case, then we would have to concede that that everything that uh, the Nazis did in their quest to round up the undesirables and ship them off to camps was perfectly fine. Because after all, their laws reflected it, right? I mean, they had reams of paper that showed we did this all according to the law. The same could be said for the Soviet Union and its persecution of dissent under Article 58, same could be said for Mao's uh, cultural revolution and every other genocidal atrocity committed by governments that did not recognize any meaningful limits on their power. It's always done according to law. Tyrants always operate under the color of law. Their word is the law. They are the law. They embody the law. But you know who the people are who are moral? The people who disobey. The people who hid Anne Frank and her family. Sophie Scholl and members of the White Rose who actually published tracts and pamphlets encouraging people to stop supporting what their government was doing. Yes, what they did was illegal in both cases. They were the criminals. And by the way, they were all treated as such. But no thinking person that I know would would concede that, well, but what they did was, was also immoral in addition to being illegal. It may have been illegal, but it was the moral thing to do. Helping slaves escape during the days when slavery was actually the law here in the U.S. It was illegal, but it was also the moral thing to do. Do you see the point? Sometimes... You have to know when to draw that line and just say, it, it's, it's not open confrontation. Well, I'm going to walk around with my gun strapped on and dare somebody to come do something about it. You don't have to do anything that dramatic. Just ignore it. And teach your children the real history. Teach them the reasons why government cannot legitimately do this. Teach them what natural rights are. Teach them why limited government is actually a good thing and supports and protects those God-given rights. I know, I sound like a full-on radical for saying such things, but these are the times that we live in. And if, if that's, you know, the label that I'm going to be slapped with, well, I accept it gratefully. And I'm grateful that I have the chance to speak out and to encourage others to consider. Maybe those words on paper, that, that legislation that's being foisted on us by people who seem intent to consolidate as much power as they can over us, maybe we don't have a moral duty to go along with them in that regard. We can peacefully and consistently resist and remove ourselves from their control. Just a thought. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Bottom line is if you have commercial insurance, if you if you have need for commercial insurance, there's a pretty good chance that you have some questions that you may not know how to answer. And this is where the team at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance would be very, very helpful to have on your side. You can contact them by going to the link, which I've helpfully provided in today's show notes. That's at the BrianHydeShow.com show notes for February 16th. Click on the link. It'll take you right to Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. You can even tell them thanks for sponsoring the program. So in the last segment, we talked a little bit about uh, the consolidation of power at the national level. And by the way, that establishment lust for consolidating power, uh, you know, every, it seems like every policy that has been enacted since Biden took office has been as much to slap his political opponents across the face as to implement actual policy. Doesn't that seem like kind of a bad idea? It's, it's a flex with a little political overtone. Look at us. We're powerful and you have to do what we say. But it's not just limited to here at home. That establishment lust for consolidating power is being felt across the world as well. And that's why I was very happy to see that Fiona Harrigan has a marvelous essay on what Joe Biden could learn from John Quincy Adams regarding America's true strength. So let's talk about foreign policy. Fiona Harrigan writes, On July 4th, 1821, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams stood before the U.S. House of Representatives to give an Independence Day address. Now, he'd been invited to simply recite the Declaration of Independence, but in time was afforded the opportunity to give some additional remarks. He mulled over the offer and eventually decided to use his platform to discuss America's place in the world. Now, keep in mind how young the country was at that point. Adam said of the young nation, she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. And Fiona Harrigan says how things have changed. Now, whether the president has an R or a D next to his name, he participates in endless wars, bombs far-off lands, looks for monsters to destroy. That approach has for far too long caused a world of hurt for U.S. troops and foreign civilians. She says one would hope that a new presidential administration would bring change to the status quo. President Joe Biden's cabinet picks have been remarkable for how unremarkable they are. A welcome change from the Trump years. But Biden would be far better served by a cabinet committed to the restraint that Adams spoke of and that has so long been absent from U.S. foreign policy. As Adams eloquently said, the United States ought to champion only its own independence. Though the incoming Biden administration maintains little of that old worldview. The president recently wrote a piece to foreign, for foreign policy expressing his belief that the U.S. should be prepared to lead again and should return to the head of the table. Biden's pick for Secretary of State Anthony, Blink, Anthony Blinken sang a similar tune in an interview with the New York Times. Whether we like it or not, he said, the world simply does not organize itself. Now, tellingly, both men have openly warned against an international order without the U.S., as a dominant presence. Were that to happen, they say, either a more malevolent nation would take its place or nothing would. 
both undesirable options. Therefore, they reason the U.S. must make the most of its unique moral standing to guide the international agenda and stand in direct opposition to rogue states. Now, Fiona Harrigan says that argument's undercurrent should sound familiar. Trump may have been the America First president, but Biden is set to pursue his own brand of the doctrine, one that looks less egocentric at face value, but that nonetheless puts the U.S. front and center as the moral defender of the international community. It's an approach underlined by good intentions, but she says it ultimately serves to blind our foreign policy decision makers. Good intentions don't equal good results, least of all in foreign policy. Our self-imposed mandate to lead has tied us to never-ending, morally questionable campaigns abroad, whether they be in Iraq, Afghanistan, or even our seemingly remote conduct in Yemen. Just shy of 80 million Americans, a quarter of the population, have never lived in the United States at peace. We've dropped bombs on 24 countries since World War II. Our actions abroad have radicalized terrorist organizations and heightened anti-American sentiment. Our quest to destroy monsters abroad often creates more of them. She is dead on, by the way, with that observation. Adams, in his July 4th address, predicted the danger of such conduct. Quote, she might become the dictatress of the world. She would, no longer be, she would be no longer the ruler of her own spirit. End quote. And Fiona Harrigan says today our reputation suffers and our image as an international guardian degrades our spirit. Now, remember, Adams' address hardly came at a peaceful time. The War of 1812 was still freshly branded on the national memory. Across the country, American troops had just fought the British in a war for their second independence. Cities were destroyed, 15,000 Americans had died, yet Adams could recognize the danger of unnecessary foreign entanglements. Faced with an international community that was often hostile toward the U.S., Adams committed himself to restraint and urged the young country to do the same. Biden, who holds that America must lead again, must recognize that such leadership can be costly, both monetarily and in terms of reputation. He hopes to reinvent NATO, for instance. But scholars are divided on whether the expensive alliance is truly worth American involvement now that the Cold War is a distant memory. And arguably the moral imperative to do something is part of what landed the U.S. in its never-ending wars abroad and has kept us involved. She says Biden speaks of the strength and audacity that took us to victory in two world wars and brought down the Iron Curtain, but fails to link our flailing international reputation to that same strength and audacity. Now, by no means are these qualities cure-alls. Instead, she says Biden would be far better off pursuing a foreign policy that's distant yet friendly. The U.S. should not be the grand dictator of worldwide morality and order, but it should be open to the goodwill of other nations. Now, she points out our foreign policy has never been guided by angels, and the Biden administration will be no different. Optimism is comforting, but it's more important to be humble, measured, and realistic. None of this is to say that full withdrawal from international institutions would be to our benefit, simply that it isn't imperative for the U.S. to be at the head of every table. She concludes by saying to Adams, the supreme moral leadership of the U.S. rested on its commitment to humility, integrity, and self-improvement. By that virtue, we must forever be aware of our own limitations. And she says what we could use now is a kinder, gentler nation, not the one that needs to be front and center in all of the world's fights. Again, this is from Fiona Harrigan, uh, an openness fellow for Young Voices and research assistant for the American Institute for Economic Research. Fantastic message and not a moment too soon.
I got one more thing here I want to share with you in the few moments I have left, and that is uh, I suppose you've heard uh, Mitt Romney has been promoting a uh, Family Security Act. And, and of course, you know, look, this is for the children. So how could anyone question such a thing? Well, only a lout like myself would, would uh, dare to question such a thing. Veronique Derugi, uh, writing for, I guess this is her syndicated column, talks about how Romney's Family Security Act redistributes wealth, creates distortions, and grows government. And I like her approach in this. She says Senator Mitt Romney from Utah recently introduced a universal child allowance in an effort to reform federal welfare programs. Now, that's a worthy goal, she says, but his means would be counterproductive. For all intents and purposes, she writes, he's proposing a kid-centric version of entrepreneur and aspiring politician Andrew Yang's basic income. According to Romney's summary of his own plan, quote, the Family Security Act would provide a monthly cash benefit for families amounting to $350 a month for each young child and $250 a month for each school-age child. Now, to his credit, the senator's new proposed entitlement wouldn't be unfunded. Romney would pay for the new child allowance plan by eliminating the state and local tax deduction a tax break that mostly benefits high-income taxpayers. He would also get rid of the head of household filing status and eliminate the dependent care tax credit, along with the temporary assistance for needy families program. Additionally, Romney's plan would reform the earned income tax credit and reduce that program spending from $71 billion to only $24.5 billion. So the EITC has mixed incentives on work, suffers from large improper payments, and is mainly a spending program thus financed by taxes on other people. And Veronica Durugi says, These offsets explain why the plan is advertised as deficit neutral, but she warns it would grow the size of government by both increasing spending as well as taxes. It will increase spending by $66 billion and increase taxes by $46.4 billion since most of the plan's offsets are actually tax hikes. And she says her objection isn't with these specific tax hikes. It's that it would be better to find additional welfare spending cuts. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you to check out what she has to say. Give it some consideration. You know, I, I'm not a fan of Mitt Romney, but I am going to try to ascribe good intentions to what he is, is proposing here. Maybe it really is about caring for the children and trying to help families that are currently mired down in the welfare system. But I do agree with uh, Veronica DeRugi's uh, conclusion. You don't do that by increasing spending and growing government. We already have a problem with that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.